There have been times in history where the future hangs on a moment. Times when had a different decision been reached or a strategy not worked, life as we know it would look very, very different. We might think about Washington's crossing of the Delaware or about the British evacuating Dunkirk. We could go back further and we could think about the survival of the the founding settlements in Plymouth or in Jamestown or even go back further to Luther's 95 Theses. These are all historical moments in time where had they gone differently, our lives would arguably be very different today. Well, this morning we have the opportunity to look at one of those kinds of moments, a a moment when the future hung in the balance. But the future here in question isn't just the future of a nation or of the world population for a few hundred years. The future here in the balance in our text this morning is the eternity of everyone who has ever lived. For that reason, I think our text this morning is a lot like the ground in Exodus chapter 3 around the burning bush. Holy ground. You remember God revealed himself to Moses in the midst of a burning bush and he said to Moses, take off your sandals because the place where you are standing is holy ground. And our text is a lot like that this morning. Theologian B.B. Warfield once wrote, in the presence of his mental anguish in the garden and the physical tortures of the crucifixion, all those things retire into the background. And we may well believe that our Lord, though he died on the cross, yet not died of the cross, but of a broken heart. That is to say, the strain of his mental suffering. And in so many ways, what we're going to cover this morning is where the very literal suffering of the cross begins. This is where the critical battle for our eternity was waged. And so I think it's important that we approach this text this morning with a degree of reverence for what it is. Even as Luke peels back the, the curtain and allows us to listen in and to hear what's going on in these important moments. If you would look at verse 39. The word of the Lord says, And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him, and when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So Jesus and his disciples, his closest followers, have finished their meal in the upper room, the last supper that they had together, we we call the Lord's Supper. You might remember Jesus, even in that upper room, told them that he was about to die And then he would come back to life three days later. And the disciples respond to this incredibly important and weighty and astonishing news by doing what? (laughs) They argue among themselves about who's the greatest. And Jesus, instead of, you know, hammering them for their knuckleheadedness, Jesus patiently redirects them back to humility. And in fact, he reminds them in the the ensuing conversation that temptations will come from the enemy. 
that trials will come from an unbelieving world, but that even through this, they will be strengthened. And now Jesus and his disciples leave the upper room where they were gathered together, and they go to the Mount of Olives, to a specific place. Matthew provides the name of the specific place where they go on the Mount of Olives. It's called the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke assumes that his readers know the place, so he just writes here in verse 41, the place. And when they came to the place. Now, it seems that Jesus often came to this place with his disciples. This is a a place he would regularly go and pray. It's a place his disciples were familiar with. In fact, this was an important part of Jesus' discipling of them. He was teaching them the value and the priority of prayer, taking them with him when he would go to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, and pray. And so it's possible that as Jesus led them out this night from the upper room, out into the Mount of Olives, out specifically to the Garden of Gethsemane, that they didn't think anything different than normal. It could have seemed like any other night when Jesus took them to the Garden to pray. In fact, this is what he tells them to do here. Pray, verse 40, that you may not enter into temptation. Now, if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to have three primary words that I think will help guide our time together through the text to make sure we pick up, I think, what's most important in the text. And our first word is, oddly enough, pray. Again, verse 40, they arrive in the garden and Jesus says, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, this fits with Jesus' prayer that he directed his disciples to pray. Sometimes we call it the Lord's Prayer. Earlier on in Jesus' ministry where he tells them to pray to the Father that the Father would not lead them into temptation. In fact, this also fits with what Jesus has just told them a short time ago in chapter 21, verse 36, when he tells them, stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. But more specifically, we have here, we have Jesus telling his followers to pray that they may not enter into temptation. In fact, Jesus tells them this twice. He tells them when they arrive in the garden, and then a little bit later, if you just want to scan your eyes down to verse 45, he tells them again. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow, and he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, the original word behind the word temptation in your English Bible here means testing or temptation. So the disciples were to pray that the Lord would keep them from situations where they would be tempted to give up the faith. Now, if you've read much of the New Testament, you likely know the truth from James chapter 1, verse 13, that God does not tempt anyone. But he sometimes does lead us into situations where our faith is tested. And this is why James, in fact, 
tells us, and Pastor Steve reminded us a little bit ago, that we should count it all joy, even in our trials, even in the testing of our faith. Why? Because we know that the testing of our faith develops perseverance. Like It's trials and adversity and the testing of our faith that strengthens our faith and causes it to grow. Now, this doesn't mean, then, that we should pray for testing, like bring on the testing. In fact, Jesus tells the disciples here to pray that they might not enter into temptation, that they might not give in to temptation. He does this when they arrive in the garden, and he does this after he returns from prayer. In fact, the second time, notice, Jesus finds them sleeping. Could be that it was late and they were physically tired, or it could be the, the weight and the strain of everything Jesus has just told them is beginning to dawn on them. And they're so grief-stricken that they fall asleep. But either way, Jesus' words are the same. Stay awake. Be alert. There's a spiritual battle raging, and you cannot fight this spiritual battle if you're sleeping. So watch out. Be on guard. We see even in this moment in the garden that Luke gives to us, we see even in this moment elements of the gospel. Elements of Jesus being and doing for his followers what they cannot be and do for themselves. Notice, Jesus has already told them, stay awake that you might not fall into temptation. Pray that you might not fall into temptation. And what do they do? As soon as Jesus leaves, they fall asleep and they're not praying. And this is not a Jesus returns and finds them sleeping and they're like, no, really, we were praying. We just had our eyes closed. <laughs> they really were sleeping. They fail to follow even the simplest instructions that Jesus gives to them. And yet Jesus stays awake. Jesus overcomes every temptation. This should remind us, in fact, of Jesus' words to Peter in verse 32 that we looked at last week. Where Jesus says to Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Like, yes, the disciples did fall into temptation. Yes, the disciples did fall asleep. And yet Jesus' obedience was sufficient for them. Just as Jesus is perfect... Obedience, his perfect submission is sufficient for all who trust in him today, all who fail, all who fall short. Well, let's keep moving on in this theme of prayer, but now let's move from the prayer that the disciples were supposed to be praying and now move to Jesus' prayer more specifically. Look at verse 41. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke tells us in verse 41 that Jesus withdrew to pray. That word is, it can be translated withdrew, withdraw, but it, it's a little less voluntary than that. What's connoted in that word is, is more like Jesus being pulled or Jesus being drawn 
a way to pray? Why was Jesus drawn away, pulled away to pray? Well, he's in agony. It seems that in light of everything Jesus knew, in light of everything that was about to take place, his response was was being pulled to prayer, being drawn to prayer, knowing that this this is what I have to do. I have to get away and pray. This is why we're told in verse 44 that Jesus is in agony, and so he goes to the Lord in prayer. Agony there means more than the fact that he was uncomfortable. It means that there was a battle within his soul. Jonathan Edwards wrote that the word here implies, this word agony, implies no common degree of sorrow. This is not just Jesus was sad. But rather, this word implies such extreme distress, Edwards writes, that his nature had a most violent conflict within it as a man that wrestles with all his might with a strong man. In fact, we can see even physical evidence of his agony as his sweat was like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now the question that every you know, fifth grade Sunday school student asks is, is this really blood? Theologians argue whether the, this means that Jesus was sweating so much it was like someone who's bleeding profusely or if this is an example of hematidrosis or someone in extreme pain can actually sweat blood as their blood vessels burst under the strain. I don't think the point is necessarily that we get hung up on, is this literal blood or is this not literal blood? I think the point is that Jesus is in the severest anguish imaginable. Later on, on the cross, his body will suffer what his will right here is choosing. Which is why this is so significant in the garden. It's why this is holy ground. Right now, his soul is in so much anguish, his body is affected as he faces more suffering than any human has ever endured. Because it wasn't primarily the suffering of the cross or even the physical torture that he was about to undergo, but rather it was the suffering for sin that he would take that was so terrible. Maybe you know of the guilt you feel when you sin the horrible heaviness in your soul when you know you've sinned against the Lord. And now compound that by the sin of the world for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And you can see the agony that Jesus was under. The Puritan Richard Baxter wrote that Jesus' agony was not from the fear of death, but from the deep sense of God's wrath against sin, which he, as our sacrifice, was to bear in greater pain than merely dying. This brings us to our second important word this morning, and that word is cup. Look at verse 41, and Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw and he knelt down and he prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, 
but yours be done. What is this cup that Jesus is asking not to take? Well, it wasn't primarily the, the physical pain that he was about to endure on the cross. The cup here is shorthand for the wrath of God for sin. Because throughout the Old Testament, the cup, C-U-P, refers to the wrath of God for sin. We see this in lots of places, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, Ezekiel 23, among others. For example, just take a look at this one passage from Isaiah 51. The prophet says, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Isaiah is calling Israel, the people of God, back to obedience these people who have experienced some of the wrath for their disobedience and sin. I think it's good for us to recall that the God who created all things is perfect and holy and just. And so it makes sense that our perfect and holy and just God would rightly punish wickedness and sin. To do anything less would mean he is not fair. He's not just. He's not holy. He must find it abhorrent because sin is abhorrent. And likewise, he can't pretend it away. He can't laugh at sin or rebellion. Rather, his fairness means he must punish sin. And this punishment includes his wrath. This one pastor, a guy by the name of Mike McKinley, wrote... To put it simply, the cup that Jesus prays about is full of God's perfect and holy hatred for sin. Unless we think that this is actually unfair of God, like we, even as created people in the image of God, sense this, don't we? When we see injustice, don't we long for justice to be served? And when justice is not served in certain circumstances... Isn't there something within us that cries out about injustice when we see it? We think it's wrong. It's because we're created in the image of God. We all long for justice. We all want, in our deepest part of our being as Christians, we want God to be fair and just and holy. Not only because he is, but because that is the way that makes sense of the world. And here we see this vivid demonstration of just how horrible sin truly is. As Jesus prepares to, to shoulder, to, to carry the burden, the weight of sin. Even as we sang this morning, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for because every sin on him was laid. And this is the cup that Jesus was about to take. He was about to take on himself the sin of the world. Isaiah 53 tells us that on him, on Jesus, was laid the iniquity of us all. And Jesus would go to the cross and he would absorb the wrath of God for the sin of all who believe. He would take our punishment and our shame and the consequences of our rebellion against God. A theological, biblical term for this is propitiation. Extra credit for that this morning. Propitiation. It can be defined as a sacrifice 
that bears God's wrath to the end. And in so doing, changes God's wrath towards us into favor. So it's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end or completely or fully and in so doing changes God's wrath towards us into favor. And this is why drinking this cup of suffering was necessary. It was necessary because it has always been God's plan for the sin of his people to be atoned for through a substitutionary sacrifice by his chosen instrument. Let me say that again because that's really important. Like, why was drinking this cup of suffering? Why was taking the wrath of God necessary? And the answer is because it's always been a part of God's plan for his people to be atoned for through the substitutionary sacrifice by his chosen instrument. So, in the old covenant, Back in the Old Testament, it was through the death and substitutionary sacrifice of animals whose blood were shed for the covering of sin, so that those who by faith in God's provision sacrifice time after time after time might be saved from their sin. Not saved by their sacrifice, but saved by God through faith, faith demonstrated by obeying God's sacrificial provision. So that if you were a man or a woman living in the Old Testament, Old Covenant era, and God opened your eyes to see his glory, and you believed and you knew that there is a God to whom I I rightly owe allegiance, because I was created by him and for him, and I have not honored God as God, I've sinned, I've fallen short of the glory of God, I've failed to walk faithfully before him. What must I do to have my sin taken away? The answer that God in grace and in love provided in the Old Testament for his people so explicitly in the giving of the law was that they could bring an animal and even specifications given about the animal that they were to bring, but they could bring an animal to the tabernacle or later to the temple and bring it to the priest and that animal would be killed in front of them. So that there would be a very real, very vivid reminder that the wages of sin is death. And also a very real and very vivid reminder that they needed a substitutionary sacrifice. If they were not to die for the wages of their sin, someone else had to die for their sin. And that animal would be killed and blood would be shed and that blood would be sprinkled on the the horns, the corners of the altar oftentimes would be sprinkled on them. The blood would be covering them as a covering for their sin. And then Jesus, in the New Testament, arrives on the scene and John says, look, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And instead of offering another animal, he was about to offer his own life as a perfect sacrifice to God for sin, so that through his death, he would save all those who by faith trust in God's sacrificial provision. You see, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, people weren't saved by their sacrifice. They were saved by God through faith, and that faith was demonstrated by sacrifice. 
And in the same way, we in the new covenant are not saved by anything we do. We're not saved by a prayer that we pray. We're not saved by walking an aisle or being baptized. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who suffered and bled and died so that his blood might be covering us, might wash away my sin. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You might think, well, at least the people in the Old Covenant, they had a, a, a tangible demonstration of what saving faith looked like. Because at least they had an animal. Like they could look and see with their own eyes. Oh, here's an animal. And they could touch with their own hands the blood. And they, they could see and they could touch. And they could celebrate God's saving work in a tangible way. If only we had a tangible way to demonstrate the death of Jesus Christ, burial, and resurrection. If only we had a tangible way to feel with our own hands the washing away of our sin, not from water in baptism, but through the precious blood of Jesus. And I would argue that Jesus has given us that in baptism. Just reminder every time we see it. There was a death in our place, Jesus' death, and there was a resurrection in our place to demonstrate our new life in Jesus Christ. I love the way Paul, the early church planner and missionary, puts it as the Holy Spirit directs him. He writes in Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a, there's our vocab word for today, propitiation, absorbing the wrath of God by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sin. doesn't mean he looked the other way or winked at it or pretended that former sins didn't exist, but it meant that even as, as Johnny Q. Israelite or Susie Q. Israelite in the Old Testament took their sacrifice time and time and time again to the, to the tabernacle or to the temple, Jesus received, God received that sacrifice in light of the future suffering and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, of the perfect sacrifice to come. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What that means is through Jesus' work, God's justice is upheld. He's not a unjust judge who says, well, you, you've sinned, people have sinned, the world has sinned. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pretend it didn't exist. We'll just overlook the offense this time. No. He is perfectly just. And he upholds his justice by requiring that a death occur. Our death, the wages of sin is death. And yet he is also the justifier because what God requires, he offers, he provides, he accomplishes through his son. He gives us the very thing that we need in Jesus. And he gives it to all who believe. So that 
because Jesus drinks the cup of the wrath of God, we might drink a different cup. A cup that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, a cup that's probably maybe even on the same page in your Bible, as Jesus is gathered together with his disciples and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. We can't drink that unless Jesus drinks the cup of the wrath of God. But because Jesus drank that cup, we now, by faith, can drink the cup of the new covenant. This brings us to our final word this morning. And that word is will. Will. Look at verse 41 again. And Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So there are two wills here, the will of the Father and the will of the Son. So it would be good for us to ask if we step back, or maybe you're already thinking this. Okay, wait a minute. We have the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so if the Father is willing something and the Son is willing something differently, then is there a conflict within the Trinity? Maybe you were thinking that. Maybe you weren't. If you weren't, you should. That'd be a good thing to think. Is there a conflict here in the Trinity? Like the Father is wanting something different than the Son. Like they're opposing here. I think to answer that question, it's necessary to remember that Jesus is not 50% God and 50% man, but he is fully God and he's fully man. He's fully divine and fully human. In fact, this has been the teaching of the church of Jesus Christ ever since day one. It was formalized later in the, it's called the Third Council of Constantinople in 680. A little more extra credit. You don't need to know that. But the council basically clarified once again, reaffirmed once again for us that Jesus had a true and full divine will and a true and full human will. And both of those wills are important. And so in terms of Jesus' divinity, he, he was fully God and he, he fully willed as God. And yet in terms of humanity, he had a human nature and human, or he had a human will, excuse me. And so when Jesus entered into our world, he didn't give up his divinity. He only set aside the privileges of his divinity, which means that his human will here in our text is asking, because he has a human will, his human will is asking, Father, is there any other way to accomplish the plan outside of taking the cup of wrath for sin? And this is not a pretend request. Like, <laughs> Jesus is really fully divine, and so like this, he's just kind of saying this, but he's like superhuman, and so he's just like... The temptations are just bouncing off him. Like, they're not sticking. They, they have no traction. They're not real temptations. No. Jesus' divinity did not dim the forcefulness of temptation. He knew the suffering he was about to endure. And so his human will wanted to find any other way. This is legitimate agony. And this is immensely hopeful and immensely helpful for us. Because it means that Jesus knows the deep 
soul-wrenching battle between wanting something, willing something, desiring something so strongly, and knowing how incredibly hard it is to submit our will to the will of the Father. And we have all been there. Every Christian knows what it's like. We know it a thousand times, probably a week. What it is like to want or to desire or to, to feel temptation and the pull and the, the, the enticement of temptation and to in that moment want and desire and, and our will is telling us something and leading us somewhere. And we, we know how hard it is to bring that will into submission be able to say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Philip Ryken writes, back in the wilderness where he wrestled alone with the devil before he began his earthly ministry, Jesus was tempted to seize the crown without suffering the cross. And now at the end of his earthly ministry, he was struggling with the same question. Is there any way out, any alternative to the cross, any easier way to save his people? Which means this is a battle scene. Jesus is in anguish as he prays. This is what I so desperately want right here. And yet, not my will but yours be done. Jesus knows how hard that is. He knows that even better than we do. Because you, can you imagine for a moment the weight, the full force of Satan's Temptation, enticement, fury unleashed at the Holy Son of God in this moment. Jesus saying, not my will, but yours be done. And we ought to pray like Jesus. We are not divine, but we have a human will. We know this battle. And so Jesus' prayer becomes a pattern for us. Father, here's what I want, here's what I need, here's what I long for with every fiber in my being, but I pray that you would shape my will to your own so that I might do more than just submit to your will, I might actually delight in it. And maybe you've heard, I was told this from time to time. That to pray, Father, your will be done, is actually a cop-out. It actually demonstrates weak faith. I don't know where people get that because I don't know what you do with Jesus here. But it seems to me that it takes greater faith to say, Father, this is what I long for. I'm going to bring my request to you, as right we should, because we have a God who cares and loves us. And who calls to us, bring your cares, bring your burdens, bring your sorrows to me because I care for you and I love you and I want you to bring your request to me. But when you bring them to me, know that sometimes the answer will be yes, sometimes the answer will be no, sometimes the answer will be wait. Sometimes it may not seem like there's an answer right now. And you need to trust my wisdom. You need to trust my will. For us to, to not just with gritted teeth recognize intellectually that that is so, but for us to rest in the good and kind will, the sovereign will of God, I think takes greater faith. 
because God is good, we can come to him and we can pray like this, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Doesn't mean we shouldn't bring our needs. Doesn't mean we don't bring our requests and our petitions and pour our hearts out before God. This is what I long for. This is what I desire. But it means we can. And we should pray. Father, ultimately, it is your will that I want. Now, here would be a good place to mention that the Father's will for the Son to die is not, as has sometimes been bantered about for the last 2,000 years by a very, very small minority of people, but you might hear this, and maybe you've heard this before. Well, isn't this just divine or cosmic child abuse? So the picture that's painted by some, by skeptics primarily, is... Okay, we have an angry father who's wrathful for sin, which is usually a, a, an unbiblical understanding even of what wrath is, because wrath is not gritted teeth rage. Wrath is the right response to a holy God at, towards injustice, towards sin, towards wickedness. It's not uncontrolled fury. But the picture that's sometimes painted is this God who is angry and wrathful and uncontrolled in his fury, and you have people like us who are in need of salvation, and we have a problem because of our sin, and God is angry, and so then Jesus steps in to absorb the blows from the Father, to absorb, to propitiate the punishment of an angry Father. And if the picture's painted like that, of course it looks like cosmic child abuse. The problem is that is not at all the picture that's painted when we accurately read scripture. Lots of reasons for that. We could, that'd be like a sermon in itself. Let me just give kind of three summary ways that this is not divine child abuse. First, the father willing the son's death is not divine child abuse because the plan of redemption is a triune plan. So it wasn't something hatched by the Father in isolation from the Son and the Spirit. The Father, Son, and Spirit eternally exist. And the redemptive plan is a plan of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. In fact, throughout Jesus' ministry, he taught that he had come to do the will of the Father. That this plan was, was formed before the foundation of the world. Jesus willingly came. He says, I've come to lay down my life and to take it back up again. Like, no surprise. Jesus isn't caught off guard. He's not this unwilling bystander. He's not forced or compelled into this. Yes, his humanness was saying, is there any other way, Father? But his divinity, he, he rightly and fully went to the cross. Secondly, the father willing the son's death is not divine child abuse because wrath for sin is not exclusive to the father. Sometimes the picture that's painted is that wrath, the wrath of God for sin is something that's isolated to the father. However, the problem with that is that it's a broken trinity if we understand it like that. Father, son, and spirit, three persons one essence, right? And so 
wrath for sin, is that something that the Father has? Is that something that is defined by? Or is that something that defines the Son? Or is that something that defines, defines the wrong word? Is that something that is possessed by, we should say? That's even probably not the greatest word. Is it a Father thing? Is it a Son thing? Is it a Spirit thing? And the answer is yes. Because righteousness, holiness, justice is something shared equally by the Godhead. It is something fully possessed by the Godhead, who is three in one. And so that means that the the response to sin, the rightful wrath against sin, is also something that is equal among the Trinity. So we don't have a wrathful father and a son who's not wrathful. Like, that's where, forgive me for a minute. Get on my soapbox. I won't do that. But this is where sometimes when people say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament because he's just mean and he's angry. And Jesus, the God of the New Testament, is a God of love. We need to reread the Bible if, if, if that's what we think because we're misunderstanding it all. And it's to say then that there's somehow differences between the Father and the Son. The Son is just as wrathful towards sin as the Father. The Spirit is just as wrathful towards sin as the Father and the Son. And so the Son willingly going to the cross is not just absorbing the wrath of the Father for sin. He's absorbing his own wrath for sin and the wrath of the Son for sin. And I think it's, it's important that we see that. We see that the, the Trinity is united in their holiness, in their wrath for sin, and in the glorious grace of redemption. It's not just an angry father, and thank the Lord we have a loving son who's our friend. The father sent the son in love. This is why even when we, when we talk about these kinds of things, I think we need to be careful as we talk about them. Sometimes we sing here the song, Jesus, Thank You. We say the Father's wrath completely satisfied. I'm campaigning that we maybe say the wrath of God completely satisfied so we don't get the wrong impression. Third, the Father willing the Son's death is not divine child abuse because the Son willingly chose to come and die for sinners, knowing he would rise again and reign forever. Point being, for the joy set before him. That doesn't sound like a son who gets caught in the crossfire between an angry father and sinning children. It sounds like a son who willingly, for the joy set before him, endured the cross and scorned the shame. Despised it and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. R.C. Sproul, I think, helpfully helps us, helpfully writes here. He said, for all that Jesus desired not to take the cup... There was something that he desired more fervently, and that was to do his Father's will. And the Father's will included the salvation of all who believe, so that we might stand before God. So we might come into this place, into this holy ground text, with our shoes off, with full assurance of faith, knowing there is no longer any condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me?
I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to sing this song that will be kind of our words of response. Hopefully, we'll allow these truths from Scripture to sink into our hearts, and then I'll come back and close us. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you for the grace that is ours through through Jesus' death and burial and resurrection, through your sovereign plan to send your son, a plan that you in your triune glory conceived of, planned, arranged, prepared beforehand before the foundation of the world. Thank you for the Spirit's work of applying that to our hearts through faith. And I pray for those this morning, if there's someone here who's not trusting in you, that you would open their eyes this morning, that even as we've sung and prayed and read and proclaimed your truths, it would cause them to see this morning. It would change their desires and will. They might turn and trust. God, that you would give us faith, that in the moments when we're wrestling with temptation, God, that you would give us strength and that you would comfort us with the knowledge that Jesus Christ knows. So God, we pray now that you would use your word to strengthen us, to give us greater joy, prepare us all the more for the day when we see your son face to face. Amen.